and it gives us a snapshot of what's going on in the cancer cell. They're putting it in personal care products, in toothpaste, toothbrush. And I was really interested in what made people stick with their GP. Cannabinoids are any compounds that have similar effects to cannabis. We can look at what's happening in the blood and that can paint a fuller picture. The issue is that no country's got this right. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hi, I'm Laura Corrigan. Welcome to Think Health. Today... To understand exactly what they're doing, we'd have to understand consciousness. And uh, many philosophers and theoretical physicists and many smart people around the world called that the hard question. Anesthesia temporarily takes away your consciousness. So what can it tell us about what consciousness actually is? And... What Tai Chi is, it's not just a spur-of-the-moment exercise to get your blood pumping to overcome that momentary stress, or but changes your perspective on stress. I get a lesson in Tai Chi. But first, it's National Hearing Awareness Week, so let's look into something important to the deaf, hard-of-hearing and hearing-impaired community. Captions. There's a push for captions to become universal. That would mean all audiovisual content created would have to have words on screen showing what's being said, making it accessible for everyone. These could be open captions or subtitles which are part of the content, or closed captions which are hidden unless decoded by a TV or other device. One in six Australians is hard of hearing and it'll be one in four by 2050. And it's not just those people that stand to benefit from universal captions. When I was studying art laws about 20 years ago, I had to borrow notes from my friends, run across the lawn to the student centre, photocopy the notes, and then run back across the lawn to return the, the notes to my friends. This is Naomi Malone. She's a PhD student at the University of Technology, Sydney. I'm profoundly deaf. So that means I rely on lip reading extensively to communicate with you. And I speak, but I've been taught to speak, having gone to the separate centre when I was 10 months old. A lot has changed since Naomi's first years of university, relying on friends to take notes for her. Now things are much more accessible. With the help of captions, Naomi can access material important to her studies. UTS provides somebody to sit with Naomi in lectures and type up what's being said. A stenographer next to me, and I have a laptop in front of me, and the stenographer types away on the machine connected to the laptop, and I read the captions, and that captures all the interactive discussion. That's fantastic accessibility aid, because it makes me feel included, and not only that, I can participate in the interactive discussion. UTS, like most universities, has a dedicated accessibility unit to improve students' learning experience. There's also a section of the library that provides accessible formats of learning materials. But Naomi says she still occasionally comes across things she needs for her studies that don't have captions. My name is Sarah Hubolt and I work in the Equity and Diversity Unit at UTS as the Accessibility Specialist. Sarah says captions are far from universal, but every day things are becoming more and more accessible. The United Nations uh, Convention on the Rights of People with Disability came into being in 2008. So in terms of our global understanding of accessibility, it's very new. And so when we come to questions of 
is there a long way to go? Yes, there is, because it is all still very new in terms of putting accessibility into practice. Captions aren't just becoming more popular in education. You can see them everywhere. Alex French works providing captions for audiovisual content. He's the CEO of the Captioning Studio. He says captions are becoming more standard because not only are companies and education providers more aware of the needs of the hard of hearing thanks to their years of lobbying, but they're also seeing the value they provide to a wider audience. One in five households in Australia speak a language other than English at home. And people can often benefit in terms of learning a language by actually reading it as well as actually hearing it at the same time. More recently, there's been a lot of research uh, into captioning and uh, people who are on the autism spectrum and benefits that they see in captioning and also people who have some learning difficulties as well. So there's all sorts of research out there to show it benefits lots of people. International students and even visual learners use captions if they're provided in lecture presentations. Naomi says all students can benefit from captions. One example for the need to caption is the recent New South Wales Premier Literary Awards at the State Library of New South Wales, and it was captioned. And the feedback provided indicated that those who could actually hear but were sitting up the back were relying on captions to access the speeches being said. So it really benefits people who can hear... I can hear, and I always find captions useful when I'm scrolling through Facebook on the train, and I don't want to disturb everyone around me by playing a video aloud. So I wasn't surprised when Alex said captioned videos on social media are more popular than uncaptioned ones. The research actually shows that even in a quiet environment, if someone is looking at their social media page and they're scrolling through, if they see something that has captions, they're more likely to actually click on that video and watch it than they are if it doesn't have captions. But despite the progress, Alex says captions aren't going to become universal overnight. Traditionally, captioning has been something that's really quite expensive to do. It's a very intensive task. It takes about eight to ten hours per hour of of video. But with new technology coming along, automatic transcription and stuff like that, everyone's seen transcription on YouTube. It isn't always good, but there's an opportunity there to actually use automatic technology to do things in a way that maybe, you know, we haven't been able to do in the past. Sarah, the accessibility specialist, agrees that captioning and transcribing can be time-consuming and putting the procedures in place can be difficult. She says one of the main barriers at universities is identifying who should be responsible for the captions. But she says cost is a bad excuse for not captioning. Sometimes people talk about cost as a factor. However, under the disability education standards and if you were taken to the Human Rights Commission in terms of why captions weren't provided, the practical decision-making would say, well, actually, university doesn't have a reason to use cost as a justification for not doing it. Sarah says all content should be made with accessibility in mind, especially as every day new types of content are created that all people want to get their hands on. So when we use a data arena, for example, or virtual reality products, how do we place captions in there? When we're talking about animations and new creative ways of displaying data visualisation, how do we make sure that any narratives that are said verbally, we put the captions there? Alex, the captioning professional, says the future is about adding even more value to captions, such as using them to search through content. 
So we actually a few years ago started looking at developing a search engine which sort of bases itself on using captioning, using data that we generate from people actually speaking within the audio and turning that into search data that we can use. So our search engine allows you to search for a phrase across a whole collection of videos. So if it's a university, it might be all of their lecture content and then jump straight into a video at the point where the person says the words. So you can imagine how powerful that would be in terms of being able to access long pieces of media to just find the pieces that you're really looking for. The benefits of universal captions seem obvious, especially when companies risk discrimination claims if they don't provide access. Naomi is about to finish her PhD. She says that never would have been possible without the help of captions. She recalls her first captioned lecture. It was a wonderful and liberating experience and that I didn't have to rely on my friends anymore. That was fantastic to me. But I wanted I just wanted to look at that and be able to do it on my own. I just wanted that independence. Naomi Malone, PhD student at the University of Technology Sydney. A transcribed version of the story will be available at 2SER.com slash thinkhealth. What do you do when your job is taken by a robot? Where does all your e-waste go? How do you split your digital assets when you break up with your partner? This is Think Digital Futures. Each week, an exploration of the moral and mind-boggling questions that face us in the digital age. You can listen on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Digital Futures. Have you ever been to your local park early in the morning or around sunset and thought, why are these people standing around moving slowly? Well, a new study has found that Tai Chi can reduce your stress levels. And not only that, it can help you better handle future stress. Dr. Shui Zhang is a lecturer from the School of Life Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. He showed me some calming moves. Tai Chi is a form of traditional Chinese martial art. We have evidence of that from maybe around the 13th, 14th century. So it's a breathing exercise combined with martial arts movements. So that's what it first started off as. And now what we see these days is more like a, more something you practice in the park for health and, you know, health and well-being sort of thing. Can you show me some moves that yeah. I can practice in my own park? Sure. <laughs> so this first movement, it's a very basic one in all Chinese martial arts, mm-hmm. and, which is the simple stance. So if we just stand with your feet as wide as your shoulders... Okay, so just relax. So what you want to do, just try to imagine holding a a balloon in front of your chest. And this is roughly maybe, I don't know, 30, 40 centimeters in front of you. Just hold a big balloon. Yeah, where my microphone is. Yeah, where your microphone is, yeah. So you're concentrating on that. So the whole idea is to relax your entire body. Whilst you're doing that, you want to keep your mind as clear as possible. And whilst you're doing that, you're focusing on just below your belly button. So it's something we call the uh, the Dantian, the Alexa field. So I think in yoga to have something similar. It's a focal point just a, below your belly button. So as you're focusing that, you just want to bend your knees down a little bit and slightly turn inwards a bit and just breathe in and out through your nose. Whilst you're doing that, uh, you try to put the your tongue to the roof of your mouth. Hey. Yeah, like that. It's a bit hard to speak. <laughs> sure, but just like that. So the idea is just relaxing stance. And this is often how we start. I see you're cramping your fingers a bit. Yeah, my fingers feel weird. Feel a bit tingly? Yeah. Yeah, so that's a common feeling that people get when they get that. So uh, my master described it as having 
ants crawling up and down your fingers or your feet and them being on fire. Okay. So that's actually a classical sign of saying that there's something's happening in your body. Your body's reacting to it. You can stand like this for anywhere between, I don't know, two minutes to maybe two hours. Yeah, two, two minutes. <laughs> two minutes is good. So that's what we start off. And we bring your hands in. As you do that, we bring your breath with it. So you're breathing in. And as you're breathing in, you want to push your hands down with that breath down back to your under your belly button and just breathe out. And you stand up. And that should give you, help you relax a bit to start off. We can try this movement where you're standing and you want to balance most of your weight onto, we'll say the right foot first. And then you try to lean most of your weight on your right foot and then put some of your weight on your left foot, but only on the ball of the feet. So we have that. So sinking down a bit. Now with your hand, have the right hand on top and the left hand on the bottom. Imagine you're holding a basketball and just holding that and sitting down in sort of half squatted position. So as you're doing this, you can try to extend your left foot, the heel first. Yeah. Shift your body weight across and just open up your arms a bit. As you're doing that, you're going to feel as if you're, uh, as you're opening up your body. So that's one of the movements. Okay. Yeah. As you do that across, you can bring that back, tilting on the back heel of your left foot. I'm it's doing bit... like the mirror reverse to you, so yeah, I'm that's getting fine. confused. And it's the same situation. So now you're balancing most of your weight on your right foot, mm-hmm. part of your weight on your left ball of the feet, and you're holding the basketball again. And then we turn exactly the same movement, right, so left heel this time. Mm-hmm. Shift your body weight forward, open up your arms, reaching out. So this is a s- simple movement. Mm. There are more complicated movements. It's simple, but I'm still not quite getting it. And That's it's also right. pretty tiring for yeah. not actually moving that much. Yeah, it is, it is. <laughs> it's actually surprisingly tiring because it's, it's slow. I think that's mm. the hardest part. I mean, we're used to doing movements that just muscles just twitch and contract really quickly. But when you try to control that contraction, control that twitch movement, it gets very tiring very quickly. So... You ran a 12-week study on the effects of Tai Chi. What did that study involve? So what we wanted to do, we want to see if Tai Chi is uh, more beneficial for people who are stressed but healthy compared to doing nothing. So we did that. We have three groups. One group uh, did Tai Chi. One group did uh, nothing. And just to make sure Tai Chi is not just the physical exercise element of it that's actually helping, we had another group that just did exercise. So that's what we did. And what were the key findings of the study? Key findings? So the results found that Tai Chi statistically significantly reduces stress in both state and trait anxiety. So state is how stressed or how anxious you feel right now. And trait is your overall personality. How likely are you to be stressed? How likely are you to be affected by anxiety? But similarly, so did exercise. So we can say at the very least, we can say that Tai Chi and exercise both reduce stress. But what is interesting is when you actually compare that data with a group that did nothing, but exercise didn't have any changes. How would you say that Tai Chi is better than exercise in terms of reducing stress? Tai Chi incorporates breathing and meditative elements in there beyond just physical exercise. That's for the first thing. And often you would do that in a group setting. So we have that group and social interaction, which is a quite a helpful thing for um, even cognitive problems like Alzheimer's. The other thing is that it's less stressful on the body. As you can try it yourself, it is tiring. There's a bit of a movement that's not exactly light, but it's a lot less 
because you are working within the confines and the limitations of your own body. So you'll never really injure yourself beyond what you're capable of doing anything. So it's safer, it's cheaper in that sense that you don't have to join a gym and gives the individual, the practitioner, their own self-control and a sort of self-prescribe what they want to do. Why would you do Tai Chi rather than taking anxiety medication or something like that? Well, there's always side effects with uh, any medication you take. And the other thing is, well, in particular with my study, we're looking at healthy individuals. So people who are nowhere near the point where they actually need prescriptive drugs to actually manage that. And I think that's the purpose of our study really was to target that range of people so as a preventive rather than in reaction to an actual illness taking place. What was the thing that surprised you the most about the trial and your findings? I think for me what was most surprising, because we thought that Tai Chi would be at the very most be equal to exercise, but it was actually quite surprising that Tai Chi actually had a difference compared to doing nothing but exercise did not, which was quite surprising. What do you think is happening physically that helps reduce stress while you're doing Tai Chi? Wow, that's a really hard question. Um, I don't think we can give you a very definitive answer exactly what's happening because we don't really know exactly what is happening at all at the moment. I mean, there's different theories. One aspect, there is that physical movement. The physical movement is going to release certain things into the bloodstream. It's going to help you relax to begin with, but also the meditation aspect. And I think recently there's been a lot of studies into meditation as well, that meditation does change your mind and change your perspective and how you cope with stress in particular is that stress by definition is something that causes you stress and then you react to it. And your body's inability to cope with that is what makes it pathological. So the easiest option is to reduce the stress or the thing that's causing you stress. But in modern society, in how busy a lifestyle we have now, it's often impossible to remove the stress or. So what is more important is actually your ability to cope with stress and handle stress and how to manage that, really. And I think what Tai Chi is, it's not just a spur-of-the-moment exercise to get your blood pumping to overcome that momentary stress or, but changes your perspective on stress. As well as from a Chinese medicine point of view, we talk about qi and energy in the body. And we talk about what happens is when you do exercise and we combine with correct breathing, it helps promote correct flow of energy in the body. And it's when energy flows and get, gets stuck that we have illnesses and problems. Dr. Shui Zhang, lecturer at the University of Technology, Sydney. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Have you ever been put under anesthesia to get an operation? Did you ever wonder what anesthesia is actually doing to knock you out? Well, I'm sorry, I don't actually have an answer for you. Doctors don't exactly know what it does. They just know that it works most of the time. Tim McCulloch is a specialist anaesthetist at Sydney's Royal Prince Alfred Hospital. If the drugs are there to take away consciousness, then to understand exactly what they're doing, we'd have to understand consciousness. And uh, many philosophers and theoretical physicists and many smart people around the world called that the hard question. What's consciousness? How does it happen that a mushy bunch of molecules can organise itself into something, our brain, which can then become aware of itself and aware of the universe and become conscious. So because we don't really understand that, I guess you'd have to say we can not really understand what our drugs are doing in our body in terms of administering a general anaesthetic. Tell me about accidental awareness. What is it exactly? 
accidental awareness is where someone becomes conscious during an intended general anaesthetic. So what we tell the patients when they're about to have a general anaesthetic is that we're going to put them to sleep, although general anaesthesia and sleep are actually different states. But we tell the patient, you're going to go to sleep and we'll wake you up at the end of the operation. And so they should have no awareness, no consciousness for the whole operation. But unfortunately, things can sometimes go wrong and people can become aware at times when we meant them to be unconscious. And even worse, some of the other drugs we give during a general anaesthetic to stop movement can make you completely paralyzed. So patients can become aware and be unable to communicate that and unable to let the people around them know that they're aware. And even worse than that, the patients may be suffering and even in a lot of pain at the same time. So, yes, we've jumped into what essentially is a failure of general anaesthesia when someone becomes accidentally aware in the middle of the operation. And is it common? Fortunately, no, it's very uncommon. Um, We like to think it's becoming less common because we have some tricks we can try to use to prevent it happening. You'll find about one in a thousand people have some memory. But a really big study in the UK recently, they worked out that there's only about one in 20,000 anaesthetics does someone actually complain that they were aware. So that's pretty uncommon, one in 20,000. What is the effect of this kind of experience on a person? How does it affect them afterwards? Well, it can range from someone having a memory, but being completely unperturbed by that. Some of the drugs we give are very euphoric, and in fact, they can be a problem because they can be addictive. And so if there is still some of that drug effect around and the person's not experiencing pain, then they might just have a fairly neutral experience and they remember and they say that was interesting. And that can range right through to, as I said, if a person is lying there in agony, especially for an extended period of time, then that can be a life-changing experience. And uh, post-traumatic stress disorder is an obvious problem there. They might have flashbacks to that experience. It might colour their whole emotional life for the rest of their life in the worst-case scenario. By the way, it's not just pain. It's also that paralysis. For some people, that feeling of being unable to move, they feel they can't breathe. And at first, they don't know what's going on as well. So it it doesn't have to be painful to be a very fearful and, and traumatic experience. It certainly can make people afraid of coming back for surgery and they might decline a medical treatment, which they would otherwise have had because of their um, horrible experience they had. So in the worst case failure, it's a, it's a pretty bad thing. Yeah. But otherwise you would recommend anesthesia, right? Oh, absolutely. We give it every day. Most patients come not being particularly fearful. Some patients have heard about these experiences and are worried. I had a patient who happened to tell me that she'd had this experience of awareness in a previous operation, and I asked her, does it make you afraid of coming along? And no, she was happy to come, and she accepted she needed the future surgery and was very happy that we were there to offer it to her. Is anesthesia more than just like one drug that knocks you out? Absolutely. There's a bunch of recipes we can use, and some drugs that we give are more directed towards blocking painful stimulation, and other drugs are more directed towards just making you unconscious, and those drugs can be given at different levels. In small doses, you just become relaxed. You might stop remembering things. You might become quite euphoric, and then you might become quite difficult to rouse, but still rousable, and then with high doses, you become completely unrousable and unconscious. So there's a whole range of effects. Another interesting thing that we wonder about is 
if I give you a drug that makes you completely unconscious but don't give any other drugs to block the pain pathways, then some of those pain pathways in your body are still working. And in fact, some of them might be screaming um, the the nerves from the body going into the spinal cord and going up towards the um, primitive parts of the brain, they might still be working at full bore. So it's possible to have someone unconscious but not be blocking those pain pathways. And then we wonder, well, could that have an effect later on, even though you're not aware of it, even though you don't remember it, could that change your brain or your body in some way afterwards? Well, these are very difficult questions to be certain about. Well, you tell us that we don't know much about consciousness, but what can anesthesia tell us about consciousness? The first thing it tells us, it's a bit more evidence that consciousness is produced by the brain because we know the drugs work on particular receptors, on particular nerves in the brain. And I'm not an expert in these areas, but anesthesia has particular effects on particular parts of the brain. So we know that some parts of the brain seem to be necessary to arouse the brain. So there's some parts of the brain in the midbrain, the deep primitive parts that need to be active in order to, if you like, wake up the cortex, the modern parts of the brain that humans have the most of. And that's what keeps us conscious. So anesthesia helps us there. And then there are all those graded effects. So as we see certain parts of the brain come on and off, we know that certain parts of our consciousness come and go. There's a question about memory and how much of that's tied up with consciousness. A patient can be interacting with you and even talking to you and having sensible conversations and yet have no memory of it afterwards. So our drugs do tell us that memory and consciousness are not the same thing. You seem really fascinated in (laughs) anesthesia. It's not just a job for you. Why is that? You can take anesthesia just as a job and you can quickly lose sight of how remarkable it is that We don't just induce unconsciousness, we do it in a reversible way so that it can come back again. And most of these drugs were just found by trial and error. There's never been anyone that sat down and said, well, I know how consciousness works, so if I design a drug that does this, it'll take it away. It's kind of amazing on a day-to-day basis that we can take away this essential part of our humanity and then bring it back at the end of sometimes a very long operation. And the person seems to reboot and come back to be the same person as they were before. Tim McCulloch, anaesthetist. Tim will be diving even deeper into our unconsciousness on Monday, August 21, as part of the Monday Conversations event series presented by the Wheeler Centre, Belvoir and Sydney Writers' Festival. Visit wheelercentre.com for more information. That's all we have time for today on Think Health. If you'd like to find out anything more about today's show, head to 2SER.com slash thinkhealth. Make sure you subscribe to Think Health on your favourite podcast app. Think Health is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. I'm Lara Corrigan. See you next time.